If you're tired of the superficial and you're craving real conversation about life, relationships, fears, doubts, and the divine in the middle of it, this is the place for you. My name is Anna Dimmel, and I'm a blogger, writer, and former pastor. And it's my passion to build bridges, not walls, through honest, real conversation and connection. And I want that for you. This is the show that will help you do that and give you not only inspiration and connection, but will help you leave the superficial for good and form the real connections you're craving. Your story matters, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Hey there, welcome to the podcast. My name is Anna Dimmel. I'm happy you are here this week. This week, I posted a blog that got a lot of attention, and it was about the Bible and homosexuality and my journey of becoming affirming. And given all the questions I received from that article, I decided, you know what? I'm going to do a podcast on this. And so this episode is for anybody wanting to find out how a person could become affirming, (laughs) which is me, how I got here. And if you are in a camp of already affirming, this will give you more information to back that. If you are in the camp of how did you get here? Scripture is so clear. This is for you too. It is my story and my story includes both worlds. So I'm happy you are here and I hope that this connects some dots for you. This podcast episode is brought to you by one of our Patreon subscribers, Robert Arnau. He is a dear friend of mine. He is an LGBTQ affiliate and pastor, and I just adore him to pieces. So thank you, Robert, for supporting this work, and thank you for your friendship too, because I just adore you. If you are interested in becoming a supporter of this show, you can learn more about that on my website, just at jesusfollower.com, and click on the button Patreon. And for any of you guys who missed that blog article and you want to go find it and read it, it is found on my website, just at jesusfollower.com. It's right there on the homepage. I love you guys, and I am excited to dig into this topic. Here we go. Welcome back to the podcast. We're talking all about this subject of the Bible and homosexuality. And for a lot of you, I know that you are already on the train of being affirming, but there are also lots of you who might be still head scratching over this going, wait a second, how did you get here? (laughs) Isn't the Bible clear on this? I want this episode to be for both camps because I myself have been in both camps. I started out being very, the Bible says so on this topic, and it is so black and white, and how can you see it any other way, into this journey of really uncovering the text and what it says, and also being in tune with the Spirit and where I think the Spirit rests on this subject. So I want to do this podcast to give clarity to both sides of the topic. Maybe you're already affirming, but you don't know what to do with those verses, or maybe you are not affirming and it's because of those verses. So my goal is not to change anybody or push my agenda, if anybody wants to call it that, on any of you. 
I simply want to give you my story and how I landed in the camp I'm in. Now, I want to start with my story, my journey on this. So years ago, uh, when I was married, my brother-in-law called and told my husband at the time and I that he was gay. And it came as such a shock, but not a shock. And I think a lot of people who have loved ones that come out to them, you kind of get what I'm saying. Like you, you wondered, you saw it maybe coming, but then when they say the words, I'm gay, it like makes it real. I know for parents, this can be extremely difficult because as a parent, you have a dream of what your child's life is going to look like whether it be them married, having babies, or them being in a specific category of society that you've already seen their life in your mind as to what it's supposed to be like. When a child says to their parent, I'm gay, most of the context of which you've dreamed for them, their life, what it could look like, all of a sudden is shattered. So whether it's a child, whether it's a friend, whether it's a sibling, a family member, when you hear those words, it can be a bit of a shock. Now, when my brother-in-law told me that he was gay, it was a shock and not a shock because I saw it coming. But like I said, it forced me into this reality of, oh, this just hit my front door. Around the same time, one of my cousins came out and here I am now seeing this on both sides of my family going, okay, where do I stand, right? That's always the question. Where do you stand on this? I took a back seat, truthfully, when all of that happened because I didn't know anymore. When I first learned about my brother-in-law, I immediately went into all of the church knowledge, right? Like your headspace goes there. But my heart was not okay with that. My heart was going, I just want to love him. So how do I reconcile what my head is telling me and what my heart is saying? That launched me into years, and I mean, this was years ago, so we're talking, I'm just now finally talking about this, years of research, years of reading, years of getting to know people inside that community, getting to hear other pastors who are affirming, share how they got there, and it really was part of my um, catapult, if you will, into deconstruction. Because when you start unraveling all the homosexuality passages, you start questioning a lot of scripture. Um, This was a major part of my personal deconstruction. And I want to share a bit of that with you. Now, wrapping years and years of questions and research into a podcast episode is nearly impossible. So I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best to hit every single verse uh, with the knowledge that I have. And and again, I know I'm probably not going to cover everything, but hopefully this will give you a, a window into the journey I've been on. Now, a lot of, of work has been done on this subject by people much smarter than I am. And a lot of what I'm going to be referencing today comes from a lot of their work. So if you are interested in further reading, um, someone to look up is Reverend Justin Cannon of Inclusive Orthodoxy. A lot of what I'm talking about today comes from his work. 
he does a great job of just concisely boiling everything down into layman's terms. And so I would really recommend uh, looking up his work. And in fact, I'll put a link to his work in the show notes. Also, the book Unclobber by Colby Martin is an excellent read if you want to dive into a full book. I'm going to put a link um, to his Amazon uh, book in the show notes also. So there's some little extra resources for you. I've had Brett Trapp on the show before now going by B.T. Harmon. You guys know him of Blue Babies Pink. He's a great resource also for parents who are going through their child coming out. That whole journey, um, he offers so much insight and love and compassion and bridging that gap. Um, Harbor is his work in that subject, and I will put a link to that in here also. So I want to give you guys as many tools as I can. Um, But right out of the gate, Let's talk about when homosexuality was first used in scripture, because this was not even a word until 1946. So when you look back at the original texts, homosexuality wasn't in there because it wasn't even a word yet. So when you look at the context of the 1930s and the 1940s, which was when this word was first introduced into a translation of the Bible, A lot of people did not understand what same-sex attractions even meant. You know, this is a fairly new scientific, biologic understanding of how people can be wired to be attracted to the same gender. So the idea of homosexuality inside of scripture is not what we understand homosexuality as of now, because we have a lot more research and understanding that they didn't have access to back when scripture was written. So... When I first learned that homosexuality wasn't even in any translation of the Bible until 1946, I was like, wait, what? Oh my gosh, then what were they talking about, (laughs) right? Like if that word wasn't even used in the Bible until 1946, then what on earth was Paul even talking about? Okay, so I will get into that. But first I want to start with the famous Old Testament story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you know anyone who references this story of the Bible, usually they will use it in the context of homosexuality was so vile, so wrong, so awful that God sent this massive destruction of an entire group of people because of this heinous sin. That's usually, if you're going to um, hear anybody talk about this story in, in regards to homosexuality, that's usually the reference that they take. Well, I think context is so important. History is so important. And that can't be more true for this story. Now, when you read this story, again, what is the context of what's happening? Lot has welcomed two angels into his home. And the city, the men in the city are, are wild with rage and violence. And they're banging on his door, demanding that they send out these two male angels so they can have sex with them. And as you know, Lot offers his daughters because they're virgins instead. So this is the context of the story. We are in the middle of an uproar, a massive, um, think of like people in the streets, right? Like think of of um, protests that you've witnessed on the news where people are, are screaming and shouting and, and brawls break out and they're hurting each other. That seems to be the kind of scene that the author is setting here where you are talking about a city in chaos. Chaos. 
So much so that this group of men have banded together wanting to take these men out of Lot's home and have sex with them. Now, I'm assuming by the context of this story that this sex would not be consensual, that this is a rape scenario. And when you look at a group setting with rape involved, I mean, this is like gangbanging material here. This is not a consensual, loving partnership of people having consensual sex. This is rape. This is violence. This is chaos. Again, this is not a good example of homosexuality in the way that we understand it today. It's important to to realize that um, this story kind of sets the tone for how the word sodomite is used in later text in the New Testament. And this is where we get the term sodomite is from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's important to understand in the Wycliffe translation of the Bible into Middle English, this was in 1508, the verse in Corinthians that talks about sodomite was translated sin of Sodom. So your Bible could very easily read in the New Testament, the sin of Sodom, but it was translated into sodomites um, because of the Wycliffe translation. So it's important to remember when you hear the word sodomite, it could very easily read the sin of Sodom, which is the story of violence and rape and rage and chaos. Okay. Moving on to the New Testament. So there's this verse in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, and it reads like this, and this is the RSV uh, translation. Now we know that the law is good if anyone uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, immoral persons, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Again, we see that word sodomite, right? Now, What's interesting is that this this comes from the Greek word arsenokoiate. And I, again, forgive my horrible botchery of this word. It's a long word. And I'm probably going to say it a thousand different ways in in this podcast. But that's the Greek word we're dealing with here. Okay. And a lot of people have broken this word down to mean men who sleep with male prostitutes. Now, in the New American Bible, there's even a footnote in Timothy that sheds light on this. It says, the Greek word translated as boy prostitutes may refer to catamites, or boys or young men who were kept for the purposes of prostitution, a practice that was not uncommon in the Greco-Roman world. Now, you may have heard this talked about. I, I wrote a blog recently and referenced this, that it was not uncommon for Roman men, specifically the Roman military soldiers, to keep young boys as their toys, to keep young boys as their little prostitutes. It, it was a sick practice. It was awful. But that was pretty common. So when you think of the context that these writers of the New Testament, specifically Paul, would be talking about, he's witnessing male-male sexual acts, but it's not in the context of a loving, consensual partnership. It is in the context of rape and prostitution. So, of course, 
the Sodomites, again, the term we get from Sodom and Gomorrah, the term that is used here again, forcing sex on an unwilling person, whether it be prostitution or whether it be gangbanging or rape, it's awful and it should have been condemned. So again, context is so important. Now we go on to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. And again, RSV uh, translation here, it says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor sexual perverts, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the term that was translated into sexual perverts is actually two different words. The first word in Greek was malakos, which is the singular form of the word malakoi. And the second term is that word again that I'm totally going to botch, arsenokoiate. And the first word, malakoi, is an adjective which literally means soft. Now, the Jerusalem Bible is so fascinating. Like this, I love, see, this is why I get lost in this history stuff, because this gets so exciting to me. The Jerusalem Bible translates this term as catamites. Again, those young, quote unquote, soft, prepubescent boys that we talked about earlier. And so given the historical context here that we talked about in Timothy, where we see this word meaning men who sleep with prostitutes. And now we see this word in the context of Corinthians, which is using this word soft in front of this. This completely could bring you to the conclusion that we're talking about a man who is sleeping with a prostitute of a young boy, a man who is sleeping with a young boy. This practice, again, that was so common back then for men male Roman soldiers to take on young prepubescent boys. And I hate even talking about this. I, ugh, as as someone who was sexually abused as a mom of kids who have had to testify in court about things like this, I just, this makes me so angry because these verses are talking about sexual abuse. These verses are not talking about loving relationships. And so as someone who was a sexual abuse victim, I'm kind of angry that these verses are not talked about more in the context of that. People who rape, people who practice in, in taking advantage of young boys and young girls. Yeah, They'll not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm all I'm all standing for that. Like, of course they should be lumped in with murderers and thieves and people who are perverted. Like, of course they should be lumped into that category. We are talking about selfish acts of violence that hurt other people. This whole passage, immoral, idolaters, adulterers, sexual perverts, thieves, greedy, drunkards, it's talking about people who are selfish. People who are doing acts to gratify themselves and are not thinking of other people. When you look at the context of a loving same-sex partnership, often they're not self-centered at all. They're selfless. Just like a straight person would want to be selfless in their marriage or a parent would want to be selfless in regards to their children. That's how a lot of these families and couples are behaving with one another. They are loving each other. And so to lump that love into this context of this kind of verse makes absolutely no sense. What makes more sense is what we're reading here. 
perversion, sexual abuse, rape, prostitution, that fits. So again, context is so important. Okay, now I'm moving on to the Romans passage, Romans 1, 24 through 27. And this one is used a lot. Um, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. So I'm going to take this down verse by verse. Um, Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Okay, so setting the scene, we're talking about lust. We are not talking about love selfless love, right? We are talking about lust. So let's just understand that. This is about lust. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So now we're getting into falsehood and idolatry, right? Worshiping something other than God. So that's what that is talking about. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. So dishonorable passions, what would that be? Well, it'd be lust. Of course it would be. Like, that's a no-brainer. Verse 26 and 27, their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Okay, read here. Again, pay close attention. It's talking about a number of men and a number of women, both plurals. So this is explaining an orgy. This is not explaining one person with one person. This is explaining multiple persons. So the picture here is painted starting with lust, idolatry, falsehood, and orgies. I mean, that that's what this text is talking about. Having sex with whoever, whenever, however you want to. Okay, so why would Paul be talking about orgies? If you research a little bit around um, this time period, there's a pagan practice that included sexual sacred orgies, which I know it sounds so weird, right? Like, what are we even talking about? But apparently this was a thing. <laughs> Baal was the Canaanite god, right? And he was worshipped with sexual orgies. So Paul would have been familiar with this practice. This was not a secret. This was common knowledge. So the idea of Paul openly discussing wild, crazy orgies and how detestable they were, not crazy considering what was happening in this time period. Now, the phrase that was translated as gave up, um, this word means in Greek to leave behind, forsake, neglect, or divorce. So, So it's talking about men and women divorcing themselves from their own nature and being consumed with passion for one another. So if you want to take the phrase natural relations and insert your binary of being a heterosexual, yeah, you could read this in a way that would condemn homosexuality. But when you look at this in light of what we know from science and biology and any LGBT person that you meet, they will tell you, I came this way. Biology backs them up. Science backs them up. So for them to exchange natural relations for unnatural, well, for a homosexual person, that would be to exchange 
their natural way of homosexuality to then become so filled with lust and perversion that they would start having heterosexual sex. Okay. So natural relations, you're, you're going against the way you were made and we cannot interject what someone's makeup is into this story. Peter J. Um, Gomes, he's a preacher to Harvard University. He talks about this in his book, The Good Book. He says, it is not clear that St. Paul distinguished, as we must, between homosexual persons and heterosexual persons who behave like homosexuals. But what is clear is that what is unnatural is the one behaving after the manner of the other. So again, you know, this, this gets down to how you're made. This gets down to what is natural for you. This gets down to lust and idolatry and orgies, all the things none of which include a same-sex loving partnership. Okay, now let's talk about creation because this is, is an argument I've heard a lot is that like, okay, if God wanted homosexuals to be part of the way families are built, he would have made that in the garden, but he didn't. He made Adam and Eve and therefore that is it. Okay, so if we're gonna take that argument we would have to then say that is the only way that families can be built. So does that mean that interracial marriage is wrong because Adam and Eve are of the same race? Does that mean that families shouldn't be built on adoption because they didn't adopt children, they naturally had children? Does that mean that children born with disabilities like Down syndrome are not part of the picture because Down syndrome children were not in the creation story. I mean, I could take this rabbit hole and run with it a thousand miles. My point is, this was a creation story about procreation. So it makes sense that it would include a male and a female to make babies. But that is not the only way families are made. If that were true, then every male and female that got together and were married would not have problems having children. If procreation is the only point of a family, then if two people are married and can't have children, well, then they shouldn't stay married. You see, this is a real slippery slope to start hanging an entire argument on the basis of family being this one singular example of family. It doesn't do justice to God's creativity. Mind you, Jesus was adopted. Let's just start with that. It doesn't do justice to the way. God interacts with mankind. Families are built so many different ways. And families should be, at least the good ones, centered around love, that selfless, agape, God-like love. What that picture looks like is not up for me to judge or for you to judge. That is where spirit comes in. That is where we have to trust that we are all made in God's image meaning that I believe we're all created with a desire to love other beings. And if that love is extended to the same gender, the opposite gender, black people, white people, purple people, whatever, if it's done in love, I have to believe that that is of God. This gets into the whole idea of, of judging a tree by its fruit. You know, my, my theology over the years has really been dumbed down to this, legit. If there is good fruit, I call it God. If there's bad fruit, I call it not. Like that is so 
easy for me. We could get in debates all day long about scripture and homosexuality and this translation versus that translation. I've given you my point of view. But at the end of the day, judge a tree by its fruit. What is the fruit of telling someone that they are wrong and going to hell for being gay? Statistics will tell you the fruit. Suicide, self-hatred, self-harm, self-loathing, isolation, depression, anxiety, being ostracized from their family and loved ones. Is that good fruit? No, it's terrible. But you look at friends of mine who are married and they are gay and they have a family and you look at the way they are loving each other and their children and their community and you are hard pressed to find anything other than good fruit. When people are given permission to be the way they are made, to be free, to be who they are, you get good fruit. You get love. You get patience, you get kindness, you get gentleness, you get goodness and self-control. You get those things when people are allowed to be who God made them to be. But when you start shoving a box around someone that doesn't fit the way they're made, you get awful fruit. So for me, the fruit of the church, forcing conversion therapy on people, forcing them to not be in leadership, forcing them to not be allowed to get married, forcing them to not lead Sunday school and not be welcome as an equal. I don't see any good fruit that comes from that. And the sad thing is, is that the church itself misses out on amazing people, amazing spirit-filled, God-loving people. When you look at Jesus which the Bible tells us Jesus is the word of God. So the word of God himself said nothing about this. Nothing. However, what Jesus did continue to talk about was woe to the religious. You be careful. You people who think you know who is in and who is out. You people who think that you're so holy, you are whitewashed tombs. Those who say the Samaritans could never be clean, could never be in the God-holy tribe. Well, guess what? The Samaritan is the holy one, right? Like Jesus continued to challenge those who said they knew who was holy and who wasn't. Jesus had disdain for those who behaved that way. Jesus was constantly, constantly challenging the voices in power who were pushing people out literally on his dying breath saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They don't know. It's dangerous territory when you get into idolizing the written text over the spirit and God behind the text. It's dangerous. You get into legalism, you get into marginalizing, you get into lording over others, you get into pride, you get into thinking you're better, you get into thinking that you've somehow arrived and no one else has. All of that is what Jesus stood against. All of that brings awful fruit. Jesus took a road that not many in church take, very narrow, but he challenged pride, he challenged arrogance, he challenged those who held tightly to their text. 
He challenged all of it. I can't heal people on Sunday because the Bible says that. Watch me. I can't include this person because you guys say they're sinful. Watch me. I can't defend this person because the law says, the Bible says, she needs to be stoned to death for adultery. Eh, watch me. See, Jesus was constantly challenging. And I know there are those who would say, yes, he saved the woman in adultery, but he said, go and sin no more. Okay, okay. Well, then we get into what your definition of sin is. Right? Her sin, the sin of adultery, it harms another person. Plain and simple. Adultery harms. You're hurting someone when you cheat on your spouse. You're hurting them. I know that there are a thousand reasons why people have affairs, and I am not even going to get into the context of that. God is good. God is love. God is grace. And there are so many complicated situations where you're like, oh, well, I kind of see how that one happened, right? Like, I know families who were built out of an affair. So to say God wasn't behind that, I don't know. But what I can know for certain is that most of the time, any affair will hurt someone else. I think sin is something that hurts another person, hurts you, and therefore hurts your connection with the divine. When you self-injure, you're injuring that connection with good, with love, with God. When you injure another human, you're hurting that connection with you, with God, with love. And so to quantify sin as, well, homosexuality is a sin, so go and sin no more. Well, how do you know it's a sin? We, Given what we've talked about, the Bible never addresses two people loving each other in a same-sex relationship. It never talks about it. So it would be like looking for a verse about how to use your cell phone correctly in the Bible or What does the Bible think about antibiotics or getting shots for your kid, whether that's right or not? It's like looking for all of that in a text that doesn't address it. It's not in there. This word wasn't even put in there until the 40s. So again, there isn't really a context for that verse for you to say it's sin. So... I cannot say that the way someone is made is a sin if it doesn't hurt anybody else. People who are gay aren't hurting anybody. In fact, they're looking to love people. That's what they're fighting for is their right to love. How is that a sin? Looking over all of this, we see that Jesus didn't talk about this. The prophets didn't talk about this. In Sodom, the activity that was mentioned was in the context of rape. In Romans, it's the context of idolatry, lust, and orgies. In Corinthians and Timothy, it's about the context of prostitution and very likely the context of male soldiers using young boys for their own sexual needs. Nowhere does it talk about a loving and committed homosexual relationship. The only things that the authors of the Bible knew about homosexuality was what they saw in the pagan worship of Baal, which we talked about, the temple prostitution, the male soldiers raping young boys. This was the context that they were talking about. That is what, to them, this word that we have now translated into homosexuality meant. We have to be careful not to take the Bible out of its historical context. 
and twist it to oppress people. We have seen this done throughout history too many times. The treatment of women. The Bible has been used historically to suppress, to quiet, to silence women for centuries. Slavery. The Bible was used to promote, encourage, and fight for, in the Civil War, mind you, the rights of slavery. The Bible was used to suppress interracial relationships. So much so that even in like the 80s, very conservative Christian colleges were not allowing black students to enter into their program because they didn't want to make it too easy for the white students to sin and stumble into an interracial marriage because the Bible is clear. Same races must stay together. The Bible has been used to oppress and marginalize minorities since the beginning of time. Often because people are misreading it outside the lines of history and context and using it to lord over other people. Let me just tell you, this gets into the spirit of the law. Paul talks about that. He's free from the burden of the law and is now embracing the spirit of the law. Okay, so what is the spirit behind the Bible? What is the spirit? Well, Jesus came to show us what that spirit was because we historically continue to get it wrong. (laughs) Thank God for Jesus's arrival, but I argue we still haven't gotten the message very clearly yet. The spirit behind God's truth is love. God so loved the world that he gave. Anything that matches up with good fruit is of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Like this is the spirit of God. And any verse that doesn't make you feel love towards your neighbor, you're probably not reading it right. Or it was man's interpretation and they got it wrong. If what you're reading evokes an idea in you of feeling better than, feeling arrogant, feeling like you've arrived, or breeding hatred and cutting off of a certain person or group, that cannot be of God because Jesus didn't do that. We have to be so careful in the way we use this precious book. We have to remember it was written in a specific time period with specific situations, with a specific historical context. To read it outside of that, it gets so blurry and so messy and so many people have been abused and injured and marginalized because of that misuse. Remember the greatest commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the great and first commandment. And the second is you should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. That was in Matthew. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your God. If anything you are doing or believing pulls you away from loving God and loving neighbor, you've stepped outside the spirit of the law. And you've just stepped into yucky law territory where so much damage is done. 
I'm a proud affirmer of the LGBT community. I, I love my precious friends in this group. I, I love them dearly. Some of my favorite people in the world are gay, and I would do anything to ensure that they have all the same rights that I've had my whole life. I love them deeply. I officiate same-sex weddings. That's something a lot of people don't know about me. Um, Kansas is one of the few states where it's legalized, and a lot of people come here to get married because they cannot get married in their home state. And I am one of the few pastors who steps up and does that. And so I, I have wept at these weddings. I've held hands with these people. I've seen their pain. I've seen their rejection. I've seen their stories. I cannot be a vessel of oppression. I just can't. What I can do is open my arms and say, you're safe here. You're safe here. This is my journey. I know we all have different ones, but this is mine. And I hope that you gained some insight from my story and from a bit of the research that I've done. I love you guys bunches. Remember, there's links in the show notes to a lot of this information. Feel free to check them out. And we'll see you next week. Go in peace. Hey there. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. You can find my blog and links to my Instagram and Facebook account on my website at justajesusfollower.com. I hope you join us next week for another raw, honest conversation. In the meantime, go in peace and know that you are enough.